And as you're seated, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, we're in Matthew chapter 13 looking at the parables. And this morning we're going to look at two parables, starting in verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure and the, the pearl. And as we do, I want you to imagine the year is 409, you're living in southern Britain, You've been asked to tag along with two of your master's most, uh, most faithful servants. You've been on a cart riding, riding with this box. You're not quite sure what's in it, but it seems to be important. The servants have said that we have to wait till the perfect night to perform our mission. And it's dark, it's rainy, it's cold and this seems to be the perfect night where they want to go. You had hoped they would be able to send with you some of your master's soldiers because all of the Roman legions, they have gone, they have left the frontier and are back at the home front and things have been very tumultuous. You stop on the road in the middle of the night and then you're told we gotta get off. And then you begin to carry, help carry this wooden box and then your limbs start to ache as you carry it for two miles off the, on the uneven landscape. And this box is only about a meter uh, long, but it's well built. It's dense. And it has this thick, strong silver lock. And to move it anywhere requires at least two people. Now you have no idea, but inside this box is your family's most precious cargo. In it is nearly 600 gold coins. They sit on top of 15,000 silver coins and then a handful of random bronze pieces. Now these coins have been stamped with the various emperors, the last three, uh, the most notable, Constantine uh, the third is all. And then kind of in on top is uh, the real treasure is not the coins, it's this assortment of golden necklaces and rings that the beautiful Lady Julian uh, has, has placed in there with her other household assortments. And interesting enough for us, there's 10 silver spoons that have this kai and this row on it that demonstrates and declares the family's commitment to this newfangled religion that has spilled out from the Middle East and has made its way all the way to Britain. Now this hoard of coins and jewelry and home furnishings is by no means the sum total of the family's wealth, but it is a very significant piece and portion. It's a significant nest egg that the family has taken trouble to put together and your master Aurelius has instructed you to find a safe location for this and then we're going to wait and once all of the political turmoil settles down and the Roman legions return back home and in order is reestablished, then we will go get it because everyone knows the safest place for our wealth is in the ground. So we'll place it there and we'll wait. And you're thinking, I hope we remember where we put it. Better not dig it too deep because that'll just be more work when we come back. And then you wonder, when will you go back to get it? Well, fast forward 1,500 in 83 years, and Eric Laws has just retired. His family doesn't want him to drift off into his dotage, and so his kids give him a metal detector that he can use to take out on their family land and, who knows, find 
trinkets, find whatever you can find. And so one morning he gets up, he's frustrated because it had to be one of the grandkids has lost his favorite axe, doesn't know where it is. So he's going to take his metal detector and go find it. And so tromping through the woods with the metal detector, he starts to get this strong signal that's stronger and stronger. And he begins to dig and he hits this box. And in this box, it turns out is this treasure this 1,583-year-old treasure from the Britain, uh, when Britain was a Roman colony. This is Aurelius's treasure. And it actually transforms the way like historians and uh, uh, we see kind of the, the Roman world. Now, he actually isn't allowed to keep this priceless treasure. Uh, the British government comes and takes it, but they do compensate him about, what in essence, $3 million uh, for it, even though the value is... Uh, uh, inestimable. Now, what if you knew there was a treasure somewhere right around you, that it was here, it was close, and you could find it? Like, how much energy would you put towards finding it? What would it be like? Now, as we look at this parable, one of the interesting things about it is that this parable is telling us that there is a treasure that's priceless and it's close, but most people miss it. They don't seek it. They don't find it. They miss it. So as we're looking at the parables, we want to do in the context the parables aren't stories that are just meant to entertain us. They're stories that are meant to explain to us why the world is the way it is, why we are the way we are, how Christ is going to usher in his kingdom. They're meant to give us a pictorial framework so we can understand what it is he wants to be done out into in the world. So when we pray, all right, Lord, thy kingdom come. He's given us pictures to explain how that kingdom's supposed to come. And these parables are part of certain parables that are meant to explain to us, like, how does change really happen? You know, one of the great mysteries of life is how do you really change? How can change happen? And this one tells us what matters in life, what's worth pursuing. So let's pick it up and read, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he covered it up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So two parables held up to give us this, this picture, these two perspectives about how do people really change? What is the kingdom worth? How is it supposed to come? Notice a couple of similarities between the two stories. In both stories, you have something that's of incredible value, this treasure, this pearl. And in both cases, kind of whoever has it is, is unaware of the actual value. So you have someone who kind of owns a certain plot of land, and they don't realize the treasure that's on their land. The, the pearl merchant, he's like a wholesaler going from different places to places, and he finds someone who doesn't realize that they have this priceless pearl. So in both cases, whoever, kind of the original owners don't appreciate what it is they truly have. And then in both cases, their response is they sell everything everything to get it. Like it's worth liquidating everything we have and pursuing. Now notice a couple of the differences. Do you notice in the first one, the treasure is hidden? It's a hidden treasure. 
And then the other one, uh, it's not. The first treasure is hidden and it's found by, in essence, a poor, probably day laborer who's working the land in the midst of his daily toil. He's not really looking for lost treasure. He's just looking to get through the day. He kind of comes upon it by accident. It's totally unexpected. But the other one is a pearl merchant who's pursuing it. He knows the value. He's seeking after it. He's probably very wealthy, and he came across it after a long and patient search. He knew what he was looking for and recognized it when it happened. You, know, you think about this story, and one of the first things is think about, all right, the kind of background, you know, how likely is this scenario? Like our kids, every single time we go to the beach, the first thing the boys do is break out buckets and shovels and they start digging. And you know what they're looking for? They're looking for treasure. They're going to find some buried treasure that a pirate has left. And you think, All right, how likely is this? And, you know, for us, it's not very likely at all. Like the story of finding the ancient Roman horde is not very likely. But in this world, it was very likely. You know, kind of remember this is pre-banking revolution, the banking revolution in about the 13th uh, century. And so just kind of the common place that any family would take, in essence, their kind of nest egg, their financial, what they were holding on to for financial security and stability, is you would just bury it in the ground somewhere. You think about like Jesus' parables of the talents, you know, the one takes it and buries it in the ground. That's just kind of, you know, what you did. And so you can kind of think like what type of energy would the kids, so a normal kind of large city in the ancient world would kind of be like this neighborhood. So Laureate Park neighborhood, yeah, I don't know, 2,000 houses roughly. And could you imagine if every house, like instead of taking your kind of savings account and instead of having it in the bank, you put it in a box and then you buried it somewhere around in the neighborhood. And so as a kid, you can think everywhere you go, you know, there's a chance that there's treasure just underneath the surface. And, you know, laws were very wishy-washy about who would own what. So like in, in Jewish towns, this is why it was so important, like things like Deuteronomy where you know your brothers, you love them. And if it had their name on it, you know, in Jewish law, it was kind of finders keepers. Like, if you found it, it's yours. But if it's somebody that you know, then it, you have a responsibility to give it to them. In Roman law, it was whoever owned the land owned uh, whatever was in it. So it could be very common. Or the idea, well, yes, why does Jesus use the image of the pearl in the second parable? You, know, you think about, all right, what, you know, we think about things that are so most valuable. You know, we think of like gold, diamonds. Why pearl? You know, Pliny, the Jewish historian, says that pearls are the, of the topmost rank of all things that can be purchased. So, you know, we live in a very crass material world, so we think everything has a price. They were much healthier in the ancient world and thought only certain things have prices. But he says of anything you could buy, like pearls were the top. And so like Cleopatra was famed as one of the richest women in the world because she had two pearls that uh, each um, were worth, in essence, uh, 10 million of what the Roman coins, the Sestaris at the time, which basically in our kind of calculus would be about six million, $600 million. So these two pearls that are worth $600 million. Uh, Caesar even gave to Brutus's mother, you know, a pearl that was worth six million of these gold coins. So that pearl was, uh, in essence, it was stability and security. 
You know, the idea, as long as you have this, you'll never be left destitute. So you keep it on you. It's part of the logic now, uh, ladies, if you got an engagement ring. Like part of the logic of the engagement ring is not to kind of wow you with dazzling beauty. Part of the logic is that this is economic security. Like as long as you have this, you'll never be destitute. Now, you know, some like poor Cynthia, it's not a whole lot of economic security on her hand, but it's still, you know, that, that's the logic. So same with the pearl. Like as long as you have this, this is your... Stability, security. So Jesus is creating this scene where these people have come across these things and there's these treasures and they're going to pursue it. So let's think about spiritual treasure. And I want you to think about a couple of things because the tragedy in both of these stories is, well, the tragedy and the triumph. Part of the tragedy is that those who had the treasure missed it. But then those who discovered it, discerned it, saw it, out of their joy, they pursued it with all they had. So a couple things about just spiritual treasure. First thing I want you to think about, spiritual treasure is here. It's close. It was right there, but it was hidden. And you know, one of the great dangers of our age is that we can miss the location and of what real actual treasure is. And so a couple things, spiritual treasure is hidden, but it's hidden in just kind of ordinary people. You know, one thing Paul brags about or confronts the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, remember, not many of you were great in the world's eyes. You weren't noble. You weren't prestigious. In so many ways, you were just ordinary. So you weren't wise and powerful in the world's eyes. And one of the things about this spiritual treasure is it defies the world's superficial standards of what's valuable. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones said in the 1950s that the curse of our age is superficiality. And I don't know if we've gotten a lot better in 70 years. And one of the things you can read throughout C.S. Lewis, he was, this is something that he really uh, would write into, especially his fiction. As he, he thought one of the plagues of the modern age is that we're so superficial and we can't see what is really beautiful, what's really valuable, what's really worth uh, having. It's kind of like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I mean, one of the heroes is, is Lucy, the child, the little girl. She's one of the great characters because she's quick to forgive and great to love. Or in his, uh, the Screwtape Letters, which is you know, kind of a reverse where a, a junior demon is getting mentored by a senior demon about one of his patients. And when the patient becomes a Christian, you know, he tells him, this is terrible. This is the worst thing that can ever happen. Of course, you're going to be tortured and your life is going to be miserable. But there's certain things you can do to help them stumble. And the most important thing you can do at the beginning is you have to work hard then on the disappointment or the anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient, his first few weeks as a churchman. He says, provided that any of those neighbors, so he, he's going to go to church, and that's bad. He's going to hear the word, and that's bad. He's going to start singing praises to their master. That's bad. But there's ways we can ruin it. And one of the best ways we can ruin it is get him caught up in just how ordinary the people are around him. He says, provided that any of those neighbors sing out a tune or have bo uh, boots that squeak, or devil chins, or wear old clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must somehow be ridiculous. And he says, you got to trip him up in just the ordinariness so he misses the treasure, the treasure of those people around you. 
He's got this image in the great divorce, which is, you know, somebody kind of dying and going to heaven. And there's this woman who's just radiant and all this glorious beauty. And her friends here are like, who is she? That's, that's Miss So-and-so. No, she, like, she was never that. How did she become so beautiful? And they tell her she was always that beautiful. You just couldn't see it. You were missing the beauty, the treasure. It was, it was hidden in ordinary people. But then you think about the gospel message and like the Bible, spiritual treasure is hidden in the ordinary book. I mean, the message that's proclaimed is that Jesus, died, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And if you believe in him, God will accept you by his grace. And you think, oh, I've heard that a hundred times. That's so simple. It's so ordinary. But in the reality of that message is a treasure that can transform every aspect of your life. And you can be made whole and you can be made complete. But so often we can stumble. So is that it? Is that the secret of, of, of life? Or you can get caught up in the simplicity of the book and say, all right, are these really the words of life? Can life and light and hope and peace be found here? It just seems so ordinary. One of the favorite images of the early church is that the Bible is the field and Christ is the treasure and you search the field to find the treasure there. But we can miss the treasure in just an ordinary book or we can miss the treasure in just ordinary activities. I mean, it seems almost unbelievable that you could walk into an elementary school cafeteria and have an encounter with the risen Lord. I mean, it just seems too ordinary. Like, it just seems too ordinary to take, like, juice and bread, and somehow that can remind me of the greatest gift that's ever been given. That's too ordinary. It seems too ordinary that just one person can talk, and he can talk in such a way that faith can be inflamed in my heart. It all just seems so ordinary. In one sense, they're pretty spectacular claims that we make every morning, where we say, we, or every Sunday morning, we want to come into the presence of the living Lord. Say, how can that happen? Can there be glory really found in such mundane settings? Or even in the midst of everyday life? Like, can we walk with him and find his presence? How can I see the real treasure that's just underneath the surface? You're going through everyday life and you just seem kind of weighed down by just the material burdens or the, the routines that have to take place or the errands that have to be run or all the practical preoccupations of just day-to-day -day life. Can there really be treasure underneath all of those things? You know, Isaiah 45, 15 says, truly you are a God who hides himself. But when you say that God is hidden, it doesn't mean he's absent. As you know, you play hide-and-seek with any child. They're not absent. They're there somewhere. You just have to find them. And often God will conceal himself in these ordinary things, in the places and the people and the situations that we least expect. You know, Luther called this the theology of the cross, which is, you know, the hiddenness of God, And he says, if you can understand it, it'll not only help you deal with just the ordinariness of life, it'll help you deal with all of the difficulties and hardships that you'll have to go through. You can deal with those in a realistic, in an honest way, because you realize that it's often his grace is hidden in times of failure or frustrations or disappointments or difficulties or strugglings or struggles or sufferings. And it'll kind of shatter our complacency. Or driven to deeper dependence. See, in Christ is hidden all of God's wisdom, 
All of his righteousness and our life now can be hidden in him. And one of the great dangers of our age is just to judge by appearances. What we see and when God seems distant or disengaged. You know, the last thing I think is interesting that spiritual treasure can often just be hidden in kind of ordinary occupations. What's so interesting to me about both in the story is that they're just going through their daily routine. They're going through their daily life. They're at their normal everyday job. And it's here that they find these, this treasure. So there's treasure here, but it can be hidden. But then the second thing I want you to notice is about the pursuit. How do they go after it? And the pursuit of joy in pursuing this treasure. You know, the joyful pursuit of spiritual treasure um, the central point, I think, of the parable is that joy is the real engine to change. You know, they don't see their sacrifice as a sacrifice at all. They're just making an honest economic calculation of what they have, what they could achieve, what it would be worth. And so they sell all that they have. They recognize the value of the treasure and just look at it as this is just smart business. And so there's kind of the process that they have. They discover the value and they're able to understand the value with their minds. And then they're motivated by this, uh, actually they're motivated by the value in their hearts. So they get motivated and then it shapes how they go out and they live. They're able to sell everything. But it comes flowing from joy. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. So you think about joy, you know, what is that? You know, joy is, you know, more than just momentary excitement or temporary happiness. You know, joy is this deep sense of well-being, this overall and ultimate well-being, you know, where they're delighting in the anticipation of this thing. They're delighting in what's required to uh, acquire it. And so all their sacrifices are joyous. And there's this deep joy of knowing that all things are going to work together for the good of those who love God and are drawn into his purposeful action on earth. Now, joy is one of the central, fundamental, internal motivations that results from understanding and pursuing this treasure. You know, it should be one of the defining marks of our life in the kingdom. And Jesus even said, I've spoken to you so my words may be in you and your joy may be complete. So I don't know if you ever thought, you know, that idea of joy being complete could be joy is mature, joy is whole, it's full. You know, your joy is almost something like uh, it's something that needs to be grown and tended and matured. So you almost think like, like a little child. Your joy is like a little child. It has to be grown. It has to be nurtured and exercised. Or like your joy is like a little fragile plant that it has to be planted and it has to be watered and it has to be tended so it will grow and be brought to a place of maturity. You know, and in his presence is the fullness of joy. But you all know that joy is something that can wane something that can wax. It's something that you don't always have. It's one of the reasons David prays, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. It's something we can lose. It's something that can leak. So you think, all right, how does, how does joy leak out of your life? You know, sometimes you, you lose, joy leaks because you're, you're constantly looking back, maybe fixated on past sins or failures. Or maybe it can leak because you're constantly looking inward to struggles or to certain responsibilities or temptations or deficiencies. 
But the joy, can, it can leak. So how can it be renewed? How can it be restored? You know, Paul tells us in Philippians you know, that we should, uh, and no matter what circumstance we're in, we can rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. That's learned. This is God's will for your life, that you uh, give thanks and rejoice always. So we see it that joy is one of the principal drivers for discipleship. It's one of the principal drivers that's meant to motivate what we're doing in life and ministry. So think about your different responsibilities that are upon you now. Uh, In those, um, how many of them are fueled and driven by a joyful pursuit of them? You know, think about ministry. You know, somebody in here who in ministry in different different arenas. And think, how can... You know, the, the normal state for healthy ministry is to be driven by joy. And so how can, that, how can that happen? How can that be maintained? You know, one of our hopes is one of the great challenges of like church planning because there's so much that kind of has to be done and then undone and so many volunteers kind of needed. And it's so easy just to kind of get on the, the hamster wheel where you're, you're burning people out. And we don't want that at all for us or for anyone else. We want to figure out how can you make it so it's fueled by joy. So what happens? How can joy be motivated? You know, in Hebrews, they tell us, let your leaders... I do this with joy because that would be no advantage to you if they didn't. So it implies that the, the, the work should be done with joy. And then also in Hebrews it says, look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So think about the different areas of responsibility you have. You know, how are they fueled by joy? Especially in things like ministry, when that delight fades away, it's easy uh, to move into times of burnout. That's something everyone experiences. You look even in Moses in Numbers chapter 11, where he asks the Lord, he says, uh, just, I'm tired of being with these people. Kill me now. And so here's someone who's, he's, he's not being motivated by the joy of the Lord at that moment. And so right, how can it be restored? You know, joy can be restored by being, uh, first you have to, I think, recapture the value of the treasure. You have to ask him to help you have eyes to see how priceless the pearl is, the beauty and the reality of the inheritance and the treasure. And then um, I forgot my my communion cup, but in a a second we're going to take communion. And one of the things is ask the Lord to help me see the, the treasure that's hidden in these things. I mean, we would never think that this Jewish carpenter is actually God in the flesh. And then his torture and execution on the surface is just this meaningless act of cruelty. We would never think that this is the means by which salvation is brought to the world. And I'll tell you another story of a treasure that was found. Uh, Roy, the story of Roy Whetstone. And so he was with his children, and they were homeschooling children, and they were going to one of, I'm not quite sure the kind of the context, but they were working on a science project where they were examining minerals. And so they went to this kind of, it was almost like this giant flea market trying to find these different uh, rocks. And uh, it's kind of place, you know, like Greg Keller would affectionately refer to this a place that just sells trinkets and trash. And so he gave each of the kids, he gave them $5 and said, all right, you have $5, you can buy whatever you want. And they found this kind of person who was dealing kind of these different rocks. And that thing was for $15, you can pick any rock. And now he knew some things about uh, minerals and rocks. And he saw one that he thought, this is, I mean, right now it looks really dirty, 
but are you sure you're selling this for $15? And then the guy's oh, yes, that's this. He told him the kind of rock that he thought it was. He says, it's, it's not worth anything. You can have, you know, I'll sell it to you for 10 uh, Okay. So I think he said he ended up giving him 15 anyway. And what it actually turned out to be was the largest uncut star sapphire ever found in the world. 1,509 carats worth that were sold for $3.5 million. And see, here there he was. He was holding this priceless treasure and had no idea. And, you know, we come every single week and we hold in these little plastic cups, this little grape juice and this little cracker. And we don't see that here is representative of the most priceless treasure that has ever been given. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. My body is broken so you can be made whole again. And then he took the cup and he says, this cup represents my blood that's shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Take and do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your gospel and the gift of your grace. We thank you for the undescribable gift of your son, who even though we were, while we were still sinners, he died for us. So we ask that you help us, help us to know the reality of that gift and the beauty of that treasure. And then I pray that you help us to then from there go forth into every area of responsibility that we have with joy no matter uh, how deep or how dark or how difficult the situations give us a supernatural uh, joy. So I pray for anyone in this room who they've, they've lost their sense of joy. I pray that you would renew it, revive it, restore it. Help us to know and embrace the beauty of this treasure. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.